0: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. Song get Facts right here,
1: get Facts. Hello, 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 and welcome to the Song Facts Podcast. I am your host, Corey O'Flanagan, and this podcast is proudly a part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Go check it out for all your music podcast needs and be sure to hit subscribe to this one and leave us a nice review. Today on the show, I interview Jesse Fink. Jesse is an author of several books, including two on the legendary Australian rocker's ACDC. His second book of the band takes a look into the final years and days of Bon Scott, the band's longtime frontman. I was amazed at how much mystery surrounded this band we touch on a few of these, including songwriting credits and the mystery surrounding Bond's far too early death in 1980. Jesse's knowledge is brought upon by years of research, and it shows as he and I dig into the details of the band. Trust me, you will definitely want to hear his thoughts on You Shook Me All Night Long. So please, please help me welcome Jesse Fink.
0: midnight. <laughs> There's a full moon in the sky. You hear a godfather in the distance. You hear someone's baby
1: cry. Okay, so we're here with Jesse Fink, who um is an author and um has written a couple books on acdc but specifically we're going to talk about Bon, the last highway which um as i said i'm not all the way through but most of the way through and, and plan to finish this week regardless and i just wanted to start out trying to figure out what were your reasons for wanting to write a book about bond after you had already released and written one about acdc and the young brothers um
2: well two reasons one uh, the book was successful um, yeah. It got published in over a dozen countries. I think it was 16 at last count. So, you know, clearly there's a love of ACDC around the world and I was very um, heartened by the reaction that the book got. Um, So my publisher, Penguin in Australia, was, was very interested in me doing another book and it just seemed... Like a sort of a natural progression to do something on on Scott, um, because as as I said to you while we were chatting earlier, um, you know he's a bit of a folk hero in Australia. He's always been someone that I've been fascinated by. Yeah. He's a bit of a kind of a um, sort of a maverick, unusual character who who died very young and but most importantly kind of produced an incredible body of work in a very short space of time yeah and so yeah. when when the publisher was was interested in in me doing it, I thought, yeah, that sounds like a worthy project and then I initially was planning on um, making the book uh take place between the the years 1977 to 79 and all of it taking place in in America because I I I'd, I'd read the other AC/DC books and I always felt that the the American part of the story had never really been adequately told and if you look at the touring history of ACDC in the late 70s it, most of it took place in America yeah, and and really for me, I, I always thought the most inter- interesting part of that story was how ACDC broke in America. So the initial idea was me kind of writing, I guess you know, Bonds American Journeys, okay, seventy seven to seventy nine. But then, as I got into it, and and I, you know, found it actually very difficult putting it all together. I realised that I couldn't avoid the. Um, the, the issue of his death in London in 1980, and it was something that you know I was very um, loath to to um, get involved in because I just thought I'm going to go down this big rabbit hole. Yeah, and and of course I, it was right. I went down a huge rabbit hole. Oh yeah, and that that final part of the book, the whole. Part about the um, the death of Bond ended up taking you know a year and a half, two years just to sort of put that together.
1: Wow, just finding those puzzle pieces, huh? Because it
2: was, yeah, because it was just such a such a sort of fragmented, um, hard to follow story that had never really been told in a very convincing way. Certainly, you know, this, you know, the the, the anointed narrative of, of, you know, how he died in, in, in the back of a car in London from acute alcoholic poisoning just yeah. never sort of struck me as very believable.
1: Um, and why is that exactly?
2: Well, because, you know, if you talk to anyone who knew Bond, they said that, you know, he was just a, a guy who had a remarkable um, capacity to embalmed la- large amounts of alcohol, and okay. so the idea of him sort of dying at the age of 33 um, from acute alcoholic poisoning just it just didn't strike me as, um, like I said before, believable. I thought there had to be something else involved, and, you know, I, I was aware that, you know, the people that he was hanging out with and, and the the person that he was last seen with were, um, you know, involved in the drug scene. So yeah. I thought that there were drugs involved in it, but I didn't know, you know, to what extent or um, what the actual story started, started putting all the pieces all together. So I, I, there was a, an author called Clinton Walker, an Australian writer. Yeah. Who wrote the first biography of Bonskull. And, you know, I read that many years ago and and I thought it was a a good piece of work until I started looking into the death myself and I realized that i um, had a very different take on how Bond died, and okay. I thought that sort of Walker neglected to include certain things in his updated book that he released in two thousand and fifteen that that were really important so for instance um but you know, 15-odd years ago with two of the guys from UFO who gave a totally different kind of story about, you know, when they found out Bond was dead, which was on the morning of the 19th,
0: uh-huh.
2: as opposed to the conventional story, which was Alistair Kinnear coming out to the car on the evening of the 19th and finding Bond dead. So there were two sort of opposing stories. So when... Walker updated his book in 2015 and he kind of dismissed the accounts of Pete Way and Paul Chapman and didn't even look into it. I just thought, you know, you're you're not doing your job. You know, if you're if you're Bond's biographer, you need to look into it and there's something there and and so I guess I just took it upon myself to find out how the two the the, the two versions of Bond's death sort of matched. Yeah. Or could match. Mhm. Um, and so it sort of became a um, a detective exercise, really, a, an investigation. And, you know, I absorbed every possible piece of information um, that I could find on Bond's death, which there's not a lot of it. I mean, there's so much that I,
1: as I'm reading through it, obviously you're... Your research for it was extensive and took you, like you said, like all over America for the most part. And I'm wondering, um, being that you and seemingly all authors have such limited direct access to the band, how do you go about researching something like this? Like, how are you tracking down these people that were a part of their life? It's such an interesting way to go about it, just not being able to go directly to the people that were there. Kinda
2: sure, absolutely. It was extremely frustrating when I wrote the Youngs because you know the Youngs started out as a book that I mean I was paying tribute to those guys. Um, I thought that getting access to them would be a lot easier, um, and in fact, it proved incredibly difficult for me to get any access at all, apart from. Access to you know people who had formerly played in the band, so when um, when Bonn sort of came up as a project, I kind of realized even before I'd started that I most likely am not going to have access to anyone, but that's okay, you know because I learned uh, from writing the Youngs how you could write a story about a group of people without having access to them hmm. and you know, it's, it's, it's simple kind of uh, research. It's like, you, you know, you write lists of people who are important in the story, you contact them, you, you uh, see if they'll talk to you and, you know, 70% of the time they will 30, 30% of the time they won't. Um, But often in that 70%, you get some valuable nuggets. Yeah. And, uh, but with, with Bond, you know, I I thought, you know, I don't want to write just a rehashed ACDC book. And so many times when people write the ACD, ACDC story, they just rehash the same old shit over and over and over yeah. and over again. I wanted to write, I wanted to write a completely original story. And so, I literally, um, had a map of America, and. Started, you know, pinning the cities where ACDC visited between seventy seven and seventy nine. Yeah, um, you know, to sort of map out, map out the you know the the the, the road that they took. Um, and I started going through old copies of Billboard magazine, um, which are available online. Yep. And finding out what the name of the local FM station was that was likely playing. Um, acdc at that time and then i would find out who the djs were by going through old broadcasting magazines and then i would find them on facebook and and contact them and say hey you know look i know that you you know worked as a dj in in um, you know in manhattan in 1977 or whatever and did you ever come across acdc uh not many of them had but there were a few who who had yeah and one of them was a guy called Neil Mursky, who was a DJ down in Orlando in 1979, and he said, "Oh, you know, yeah, um, it just so happens I've got a interview with Bond that I've never played before, and you know, you can have it."
0: Wow! So it
2: was like three minutes, three minutes or something of Bond Scott talking to Neil Mursky in. Florida in 79, which is, like, amazing. We are uh, backstage with Bon Scott, the lead singer of ACDC. Welcome to Florida.
0: Thank you, Neil. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here, and I love to play. Have you ever been to Florida before playing? Gee, we used to spend five weeks down here uh, a couple of months back to write the new album, which
2: is, uh, like, the Highway to Hell album.
1: Is that the name of it, Highway to Hell?
2: Uh, Tentatively, yeah, yeah. We were down here, in, like, on, on Miami Beach for five weeks. To come up... A- Cross something like that, you know, for, for, for me, it was like extraordinary. And it yeah. only happened, it had only happened because I just methodically kind of just went through this list and contacted these people. And, and that's what, uh, you know, I, I would say to any person who's thinking of writing a biography you can never do too much research because yeah. you never know what you're going to find when you do it. So I met Neil. Neil was very kind to give me that interview. I uploaded it on YouTube, and um, and then he introduced me to a friend of his who had hung out with Bon Scott in 1979 in Miami. This guy is called M- Michael Fazulari, who was in in a band called Critical Mass, which is like a early version of Green Day. They're even better than Green Day, and they had <laughs> some minor success in in 1980. Anyway, and they were hanging out with ACDC and Bon Scott in Miami while they were rehearsing Highway to Hell. Yeah. And so this whole sort of suddenly opened up for me where where it was like, oh, shit, I have an opportunity to tell a story that's never been told before, which is Mm -hmm. ACDC in Miami Mm -hmm. in 1979 rehearsing what would be the Highway to Hell album. And through my girlfriend that, um, that Bon had, and we got in touch with each other and she invited me to come and stay with her. And I did. And it was suddenly like, wow, I've got a story now. Amazing. You know, that, that, that's just a good example of like, you know, when you think that you've got nowhere else to go, if you just go and do the research, suddenly, you know, things just suddenly materialize and you, you've, you've actually got a book.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's what it kind of seems like in terms of just continuing to turn over rocks and you'd think that eventually yeah. you're going to get something. And then it's just kind of is a, a domino effect from there. I want to touch on something quickly because I found this really interesting because at the beginning of the book, it kind of starts by saying that Malcolm Young is the best living gu- rhythm guitar player. And I was wondering what attributes to that, because I don't think I've ever heard that claim before. So that really stuck out to me.
2: Oh, I mean, I, I, I'd always kind of really liked Malcolm from an early age. Uh, one, because he just didn't look like a rock star at all. No. You know, <laughs> you know, long-haired homunculus, you know, with a guitar that was, you know, too big for him. But, you know, he, he just sort of produced these sounds, this sort of very simple, you know, riffs that, you know, uh, they just they just sort of... Are etched in your in your brain. You 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 don't forget them, you know. And that, and that's the thing with ACDC. They're never trying to do sort of do anything too flashy or they're they're not show offs. Yeah, it's it's just simple rock. And I, I guess when I wrote the Youngs, you know, it opens, you know, with me going to the you know this this art museum in in New York and seeing um, Monks the Scream painting and, and me not being sort of touched by it and then leaving the gallery and putting on a pair of headphones and listening to back and black and thinking it was the most awesome thing that I'd ever heard in my life. Yeah. And there's this sort of tendency, I think, to look down on things that are seen as simple. Okay. You know, that they're, they're not artistic enough. Yeah. Or they're not ambitious enough. You know what you know, when you distill something down to its very basic ingredients. And you and and you you manage to make it you know powerful and memorable and and, and brilliant like a c d c does it's an art so you know when you when you look at sort of you know musically kind of what that band created during that period and you know the amazing amount of riffs that you know they've introduced into our musical consciousness in which we still listen to and remember every day. Yeah. You know, Malcolm was responsible for so much of that. And, you know, personally, I, you know, yes, Angus Young is an, is an amazing lead guitarist. Um, but for me, the sound of ACDC is Malcolm Young.
1: And those power chords. Yeah, I don't disagree with that at all. You, you said in uh, 1977 you felt that Bond songwriting during that tour peaked. And I was wondering just if you could expand on that a little bit, because I don't think that he probably gets nearly enough credit as a songwriter, like an actual lyricist. And I'd like that you wanted to touch on that a little bit, but I'd like for you didn't go into it in too much detail in the book. You kind of touched on it, but I'd like to kind of get the reasoning behind that.
2: Um, well, I think the great thing about ACDC songs from that period and why they still resonate with, fans to the degree which they do is because you can relate to him he's he you know on, on the on the power age album which I think is aCDc's best album you know he's writing songs about sort of being kicked in the guts by by women yeah you know or losing out in love or you know not having money or, you know ba- just basic sort of human uh, issues that we all face at one time or another yeah and i think that's why those songs count so brilliantly with 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 listeners and you know he he does that again on you know highway to hell you know songs like um um you know shot down in flames being turned down by a woman you know he's trying to pick up they're just sort of simple themes and and i think that's why they work and, and not only is he a very compelling kind of performer and a great singer he's a he's just a great lyricist he's funny yeah uh, he's witty. he's got a great turn of phrase um and and that's what i think so much later period OCDC lacks and I think that after Bond died, sort of the the lyrics generally sort of just became really kind of juvenile and you know sort of puerile. Yeah. And I don't relate or connect to it.
1: Yeah, I know what you mean. You had said that a uh, love song. different side of bond and this was an acdc song that i hadn't heard so i kind of wanted to touch on that specifically what i mean that's kind of in that era of what you were talking about like he's he's going through these things that we can all relate to with women um, and relationships and things like that and but what what about this song just kind of piqued your interest of like oh i haven't really heard him go down this road was it just because it's a little more tender
2: well i mean that's a song that's you know, is sort of regarded as I think Angus Young called it ACDC's worst song. Oh, really? <laughs> Which I don't necessarily agree with. Uh, I can't really tell you too much about that because I, I've never really kind of looked so much into into love song. That's all right. But I do know, I do know the guy that you know played the drums on it. For instance, like that's a that's a a little bit of a story that people didn't know until I wrote The Youngs was, you know, the guy who was the drummer on Love Song Um, was a guy called Tony Carenti, a guy who um, is is an Italian migrant who just sort of happened to be the studio sort of drummer for that album. And he was asked to sort of, he was recording with another band and he was asked to stay back and play in the studio for Vander and Young and record the drum tracks for ACDC's first album. He mm-hmm. ended up, I think it was, contributing drum track seven of the, the song he had, an Italian passport, and it meant that if he went back to to Europe, he would, uh, he would have to be you know, conscripted into the Italian army. He didn't want to do military service, so he turned them down. Now, Tony sort of gave up drums in, I think it was 1977 or so, and didn't touch them. Um, for another thirty-seven odd years, and then I walked into his <laughs> his pizzeria in um, in Sydney, where literally you walk in and you see this, you know, small fat Italian guy, you know, sort of flipping pizzas, um, who looks like you know uh, your typical kind of Italian granddad. And it's like, what? He played for AC did he? Are you kidding me? And and the amazing thing was that, you know, Tony hadn't sort of spoken to any journalist ever about his time um, with ACDC. And if you read sort of previous books on ACDC, his name had been misspelled or, you know, they just got the story completely wrong anyway. And so I went while I was writing The Youngs and I sat down with him and I heard his story and it was remarkable. And, you know, to think that, you know, the biggest band in the world um, had a a guy who's, you know, making pizzas at a, at a suburban pizzeria in Sydney. <laughs> um, was their first drummer and, and people didn't know about it. I just thought it was extraordinary. Yeah. And, I, you know, I asked Tony, what's your favourite ACDC song? What's the, you know, the, the one you love the most? And, and he He actually played on High Voltage, the single, you know, so a classic AC-DC song. He actually said the love song was his favorite track.
1: Stay tuned for more Song Facts Podcast right after this. Ever wonder how my voice is bouncing off your eardrums so clean and crispy? No? Well, let me tell you anyway. The Lyra Microphone by AKG brings their legendary acoustic engineering to a versatile USB mic that delivers the highest quality audio in its class, USB connection. This is good for me because of the simplicity and the ability to just plug and play without an interface. You may have gathered from various episodes that I am doing this show on the road, so being that I record most interviews in a different location than the last, it is good for me to know that I have a high quality, easy to transport and use USB mic like the Lyra to make sure my sound is clean. Whether you're like me and recording a podcast, a musician, recording vocals, or an instrument, or if you need to do a voiceover for a YouTube channel, Lyra's innovative AKG Adaptive Capsule Array adapts to your performance to record pristine audio. It has four versatile capture modes. What's a capture mode, you ask? That is how the mic picks up your voice. Just trust me, with these four options, it's really all you're going to need. With AKG Lyra, you'll be up and running in no time, no matter your experience level. There's no assembly, no need for separate audio interface, no fiddling with software settings, it just works right out of the box. And Lyra is something that is compatible with Windows, Mac, iOS, and Android devices, and all major recording softwares. So. If you're looking for a mic that offers ease of use along with a high-quality sound, check out the AKG Lyra and look no further. I want to get into the thick of it now because obviously the main controversy of this band has to do with Back in Black and I'm wondering can you just explain because you're you're my you're my expert on this? What is the debate in terms of songwriting credits? And then I've got a couple of follow-up questions on that. But let's just kind of start with just kind of the general debate of this scenario. Uh,
2: well, I guess the, you know the the anointed ACDC story around Back in Black is that it's a tribute album to Bon, bon Scott. Yep. Um, you know the all-black cover the song, Back in Black. Hells, bells, etc., are all, you know, tributes to Bob Scott, who had tragically passed away in London in February 1980. Um, now, it has been said and rumoured for many years that committed lyrics to that album, which were uncredited. So, if you look at the credits to the back and black album, it says Young Young Johnson. Um, Brian Johnson played in a, a, a British band called Geordie. He was asked to audition after the death of Bond. He got the job, sort of within two months of you know Bond dying in London. They were in the Bahamas and they recorded "Back in Black," for which Brian Johnson got credit for writing the lyrics. Mm-hmm. And as we all know, "Back in Black" went on to become the you know the biggest selling rock album, hard rock album of all time.
0: Yeah,
2: which you know, is it it remarkable in itself, but it's even more remarkable that it was all done sort of within the space of two months from, you know, by, by a, a guy who had only written, I think, three songs for his previous band in the whole time that they were together. Yeah. So I obviously was interested in looking at that issue of whether Bond had contributed lyrics to Back and Black, Um as well as sort of doing my best to kind of solve the issue of, you know, how we die. So they were the sort of the two thrusts of of the book and, you know, very, very difficult things to answer. But I thought like, if I don't sort of tackle them, then I'm not, not doing my job.
1: Well, and especially given the, the writing of the songs, I think that, I mean, you give some really compelling evidence. And I've heard interviews with Brian Johnson where he in detail tries to describe writing the, the opening line to you shook me all night long and and all these things and like his fascination with cars and mixing that in with women and stuff like that but you give really compelling argument uh, you know for bond as well so it's a really interesting argument
2: yeah and and the thing is you know angus young and brian have you know hold their versions of how those songs were written, and there have been sort of subtle differences in, in those stories, you know, as they've been told over the years. And I couldn't help but notice, you know, some some of these contradictions. But, you know, what I realised, you know, from looking into, you know, um, albums like Power Age and Highway to Hell was that Bond wrote from his life, right? So it stood to reason that if, that if Bond had written songs on Back in Black, but they were about people that he knew. Yeah. You know, I had this serendipitous encounter with ex-girlfriend who's given the name Holly X, and I'm hanging out with Holly in Miami, and I'm meeting people that, you know, she and Bon knew and, and hearing about how close the two of them were. And I remember Holly sort of saying, you know, Bon... You know, used to come out to my place and hang out, and and you know we had a great time. And and I had a horse that he really loved, and we would go and I would ride the horse, and he would watch me riding this horse. And I'm thinking, you know, where's this story going? You know, what's this got to do with <laughs> it? She said, "Oh, the horse's name, horse's name was Double Time." Double, double time. Okay? And like ping. Yeah. You know. Suddenly it's like, holy shit, did did she just say what I thought she said? <laughs> and and suddenly I'm looking at the lyric and you know, you, you shook me all night long, you know, working double time on the seduction line. I'm thinking, No. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Is that possible? And uh but, you know, I met, her, I met her in person, you know, so I'm meeting someone that I suspect could have been the subject of the song, you shouldn't you should, We all Know. long. And, you know, she's saying to me, oh, I, I remember, you know, going out to the Newport Hotel in Miami and, you know, lying down out by the pool and, and you know, Bond telling me that I had, you know, chartreuse eyes, you know, because they were so green, yeah, and, and 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 then you look at a lyric like sightless eyes, in the in the song, and you are thinking, well, you know, I've always heard that lyric, but it's never actually kind of made sense to me. What are sightless eyes? You know, and Chartreuse Eyes makes sense, but sightless eyes, why did she have sightless eyes? So, you know, I'd always felt like. That first verse of of, You Shook Me All Night Long sounded like Bond Scott. It just had the zip the zip the zip in the ring of 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 Bon Scott. And you know, lines like, She told me to come, but I was already there. You know, which Silver Smith, Bond's other girlfriend had had said that she'd actually spied in one of his notebooks. Suddenly, you know, kind of all these things, pieces of information are coming together, and I'm thinking, well, you know. If we if we take the hypothesis that Bond had something to do with Back in Black, if there's a song on the album that could have been his, it's this one. Yeah, it's this one because it, as as a listener, it it, it for me it screams Bond Scott. Yeah, right. And so there you know there are a whole whole bunch of things which I go into in the book about that particular song. Yep, and I've never been convinced that it a song that that Bond had nothing to do with. But then, you know, you can look at a song like Back in Black and, you know, if you think of it as a song about money, it kind of makes sense, you know. We've sort of been told that it's a song about, you know, memorialising a dead man. But if you actually sort of listen to it and think, you know, maybe he's talking about being Back in the Black, which, which Bond was, by the end of 1979, because I actually went to the trouble of um, applying for and getting his certificate of probate, which listed his assets at the time of his death. right? Bond had $31,000 to his name, right? So he finally had some money in his account after however many years of hard slog and toil on the road, right? It's a song about having money again you know it it, it might not be true i mean i'm not saying in this book that any of this um can be proved yeah yeah but i present enough information for a reader or or a listener to just look at what i'm saying listen to the song and then come up with your own ideas about whether it's it's um feasible or not And certainly me after spending time with his his ex-girlfriend in Miami and just seeing, you know, what a sensational sort of woman she was or is and, and, you know, what she would have been in 1979. Everyone wanted a piece of Holly X. You can imagine Bond, you know, writing songs about her. Um, So I think there are songs on, you know, Highway to Hell, which are about her. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, Michael Fasilari, who was hanging out with ACDC and Bonscott in Miami in 1979, says he has no doubt that songs on Highway to Hell are about Holly. So I think particularly You Should Be All That Long um, could well be a Bonscott song. And in fact, I'm convinced it's a Bonscott song. Um, so you know but i'm not saying definitively that it is that's just my my view after having sort of done this research into into you know bond's final movements in in the united states
1: yeah and i've seen something where you've um pointed out a discrepancy in the young's version of things where i think sometime in like the mid to late 80s they said one thing about it being a tribute to him or Giving him credit in some way, shape, or form, and then further down the road, kind of taking that away again.
2: Yeah, there was a a story in um, uh, Australian Rolling Stone in 1998 with a journalist called Alyssa Blake, um, where she where she asked Angus Young. She said, "Have you ever thought about quitting?" And Angus said, "Quote." The only time was when Bond died. We were in doubt about what to do, but we had songs that he had written and wanted to finish the songs. Hmm. Thought it would be our tribute to Bond and that album became Back in Black. Then you've got another, a second interview, which happened seven years earlier with Kerrang! magazine, where Angus was talking with Paul Elliott. Paul Elliott asked him, you know, who wrote the lyrics on Given the Dog a Bone and the others on Back in Black? Bon or Brian or both. And Angus says, Bon wrote a little of the stuff. So he had something to do with it. Um, and previously, you know, the story was that it was um, have a drink on me and let me put my love into you. So that had changed. So, you know, little details like that. To, to the average person who's reading this story, they're not going to think anything of it. But exactly. obviously I know the back story. I've, I've read the interviews in the past. And it's it's just striking me that there is a huge contradiction there. Either Bond had something to do with the lyrics, or he didn't. It can't they can't it can't be both. There's a mystery there. And what I'm heartened by is that having you know started uh, Bond Scott Forum on Facebook, and we've got like a healthy little community of Bond fans there. That people are really talking about it now. It's yeah. not seen as like this sort of wild conspiracy theory. Um. Just sort of complete unhinged sort of conspiracy theory, which you know, people some people like to paint it as. Which you know, s- certainly some members of the you know the hardcore ACDC community will not um, will not listen to any suggestion that you know born had something to do with Back in Black. But I can tell you there are a lot of people out there now who are starting to to think this way.
1: Um, okay, let's circle back into just kind of the. The like I said, I haven't 100% finished it, but what I assume is the end of the book and mm. the um and just the mystery surrounding his death. Because, like you said earlier, there's another author that originally published one, had a different take, re updated it in 2015, and hasn't, in your opinion, come up to the same conclusion as you have.
2: I don't think he covered all the bases that he had to. And... You know, I respect him for his, his his earlier work, but I completely disagree with his conclusions. Yeah. And you know, I guess the most significant thing was that uh you know the the, the conventional story is that, that Bond was only with another one other person, which was Alastair Kinnear. He was yeah. this sort of you know, mystery individual. Um that uh, no one knew really anything about. But, you know, by the accounts of people that I spoke to, that he was heavily involved in heroin, was was dealing heroin. Chapman, the the late guitarist of UFO, said that um, he was waiting for Bond to return to his flat with heroin. The people that I spoke to who were at the Music Machine Club in Camden, On the evening of the 18th, early morning of the 19th of February 1980, believe that um, you know Bond had um, snorted heroin; that he was off his chops and wasn't in a good way. If you uh, speak, you know there aren't that many people to speak to who were there or were had seen Bond that night. Mm -hmm. But it became very clear to me from speaking to the people who were still alive. That bomb was very, very entrenched in the, the London heroine scene at that time. Yeah. Um, so, you know, here we have a guy who was famous for his, you know, capacity to drink, you know. Paul Chapman's nickname was Tonker. you know, and he said, um, you know, I-, I could drink, you know, unbelievably, but, you know, nothing compared to bomb. So, you know, here's, here's a man who has this sort of superhuman sort of capacity to ingest alcohol. But he's dead in the back of a Renault in London, um, you know, found in the back of a car at the age of 33. Um, for me, given, you know, what Bond was involved in in the lead-up to he was hanging out with, um, who he was with on the last night, Etc. cetera, it became very clear to me that um, he had had a heroin overdose, which, you know, had, had mixed with alcohol and, and caused a fatal reaction. But I, I guess the, you know, the, the most important kind of thing that I came up with was that Bon and, and Alistair were with a third person or possibly even a fourth person at Alistair's flat back in East Dalich a woman called Zena Kukuli, who was the manager of um, Lonesome No More, which was the band that was playing at the Music Machine that night. Okay, She said that she was back there with Alistair and Bond. That had never been said in any kind of, you know, inquest. No one had called Azula, uh, sorry, uh, Zena, to, um, you know, talk about the fact that she was there. Uh, Zena's sister who was the lead singer of Lonesome No More, was a woman that she spoke to me. She didn't want to be identified when the book was originally published and then subsequently she's died. So it's okay for me to actually say this now. But she said, I saw Bond that night, you know, and as a former heroin user, he looked stoned. That's an eyewitness account. It's not, it's not like hearsay. This is from someone who was there. He said, I saw Bond with my own eyes. He looked stoned on heroin. again." I have no definitive proof that, that, that Bond had a heroin overdose, but I think if you put all these sort of pieces of information together about what was going on that night, who he was with, who he was hanging out with, what he was there to do, you can't come away with it without any other conclusion that heroin had something to do with it. So my theory is that Bond quite possibly was, was already dead by the time you know, they got to the flat in East Dulwich. And then he was left in the car for as long as possible before they drove to the hospital in the hope that um, whatever traces of heroin were in his system had some, somehow miraculously sort of uh, disappeared by the time, um, you know, the aut- autopsy was performed. Okay. So, that's you know, interesting. I, I looked into, you know, um, the effects of heroin on the body, how long heroin st- stays in the body after an overdose and so on. And that's all talked about in the book. and. I think it's it's quite possible that that was what they were trying to do um now, and since the book was written um there's a lot of there's a lot of mystery about that whole um night, and I've put it together as as well as I can I've come up with sort of two theories about what happened um, my 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 strong belief is that he died of a heroin overdose and heroin is you know notoriously kind of um a, a tricky thing when it when it comes to sort of mixing with alcohol you can you can end up dead and that would, and that would explain a lot so you can't go sort of back in time and 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 you know say with you know definitive 100% certainty what happened it's just impossible there's no toxicology toxicology report available all the records that i tried to find that were at the hospital, have have disappeared. Hmm. So the reception has been interesting because, you know, there is a, a, an element of the ACDC fan base who just will not accept that Bond had anything to do with heroin, even though it's on the record. And, you know, Mark Evans from ACDC told me when I wrote my first book that Bond almost got sacked for a heroin, heroin overdose back in 1975. Yeah. You know, Michael Brown, the, the former manager of ACDC, talked of a second heroin od in 1976 so i don't think it's beyond the realms of possibility that he had a third overdose in 1980.
1: i mean I, I, it just seems to me that the it's an unnecessary mystery because what does it really change about the history of the band and in bond i don't think that it I don't think that it would well, – if, if the truth all of a sudden appeared, I don't think that it changes any sort of legacy for the band or the individual or the indivi- other individuals yeah. involved.
2: Right, no, and, and that's why, you know, it, it sort of amuses me when people say, oh, I'm disrespecting Bon Scott. No, give me a fucking break. You know, like, no, I'm doing this because I do respect him. Yeah, I exactly. admire the guy. I want to find out how he died. His legacy any favours at all. He was a human being. You know he wasn't just sort of this caricature rock god that everyone thinks he is he was a he was a person with flaws who had you know human concerns and, and relationship problems and and all sorts of problems like anyone else on this planet and that's so you know when I write this book it's like i'm i feel like i'm I'm humanizing someone who should have been humanized a long time ago instead what you see you know with with um you know, festivals like Bon Fest in Scotland is like the celebration of this sort of Peter Pan figure, you know, which is which is just complete crap. Complete crap, you know. Bond was a was a um, an imperfect guy. He had a lot of problems. He's a human being, you know, like like Silver who, Smith, some, uh, his ex girlfriend, who I got quite close to before she died. She was really happy that I was finally, you know, writing a book that was showing, you know, Bond with all his with all his warts. You know? Rather than this sort of this cartoon character that, that you know you you see celebrated in things like Bondfest. And that's why, you know, I just won't ever be a part of that. They would never want me to be a part of it either, mind. Because I'm, you know, public enemy number one to to that group. But that's fine. I feel like I've I've done my bit.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think that I'm really enjoying the book. I encourage anyone that hears this to go and read it and, and get some of these different accounts. And like your research, you can't deny how deep you went. And I, I really appreciate that you've done that. And I also appreciate you giving me an hour of your time and kind of going over some of this stuff because it's fascinating to me. I love it and uh and I hope that there's more to come. So Jesse, I really appreciate it. Thank you.
2: No problem, Corey. Good
1: you, Big big thank you to Jesse for coming on and sharing his knowledge and time with us. Fun fact, AC D C was actually one of the first concerts I ever saw. One tickets calling into a radio station, so Awesome. Really enjoyed that. Hope you did, too. And as always, for the stories behind the songs, go to songfacts.com. Thanks.
3: It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football.